0: Here's something that won't surprise you. I love Southern storytelling. Whether it's in books or movies or music or journalism, I'm always seeking out new information, perspective, and stories from the South. Chuck Reese has a similar hunger for Southern stories, so he built himself a home for them. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we are talking with Chuck Reese about The Bitter Southerner, an online magazine he founded in 2013. Chuck grew up in Georgia and spent most of his early career in New York working in magazines. Today we'll chat a little bit about his life in New York and how it pushed him to dig into his southern roots. Plus, we'll also go into music, politics, and finding new voices. So let's dive into this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Chuck Reese, thank you so much for coming on the Reckon interview.
1: I am so glad to be here. I've been an admirer of Reckon ever since it began. I'm just glad you you wanted to talk about the Bitter Southerner.
0: Well, you know, I, I think if we're starting off with a little uh, mutual admiration society, I should... <laughs> I should uh, say that I remember living in San Francisco in 2013 and 2014 and reading your introductory column and Patterson Hood's piece in The Bitter Southerner um, very early on. And I was struck with equal parts awe and envy. (laughs) I think that like, wow, you know, somebody's finally doing this and doing it the right way. And I think more than I, anything, I think I felt a little homesick at the time. I can't credit you with uh, making me move back to Alabama. I, I got to give tip my hat to Justified and to Jason Isbell and to uh, the cost of living in San Francisco. But you definitely kind of sparked this idea within me about... The stories that we are telling in the south and what's what southern storytelling is like so you know in a lot of ways i was not in journalism before and and the work that y'all are producing back then kind of set me on on the path that i'm on now so thank you for that
1: well i'm flattered and i don't know whether to feel sorry for you or not.
0: <laughs> me neither we'll, <laughs> we'll figure it out there are also still days where you know i'll open up bitter southerner and you know my tuesday morning newsletter and i'll say oh well damn it Chuck's done the same story I was working on. So, you know, it seems like sometimes we can get simpatico in in our way of looking at things. And I started kind of digging into your background a little bit before this conversation. Okay. You know, not complete overlap, but both grew up in deep southern states, Alabama and Georgia. Both moved to bigger cities. This is true. I moved to Chicago and then D.C. and then San Francisco, and you moved to New York. To New York twice. Twice.
1: Once in the 80s. And again, in the year two thousand, and you
0: were working it for Adweek.
1: My my first job out of college. Well, okay, my first encounter with New York City. So I guess if you want to get technical, you would say I'd lived there three times. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I I because the summer between my junior and senior year of college, I got into the American Society of Magazine Editors summer internship program, mm-hmm. which big shout out to my now retired professor Kent Hannon for telling me that's something I should do and it's a it's a fairly difficult thing to get into each journalism school may only nominate one person. oh wow essentially it's been going on for years and what they do is they bring you know three or four dozen kids to New York and each one gets assigned to a different magazine. I wound up a business reporter for seven eight years of my life because I got assigned to advertising
0: age okay. At age, not at elderly.
1: age. yes, their competitor. And at age had told me that they would, you know, unless something happened, they would hire me right back when I finished school and then I could come back to New York. But as is often the case, when you're fresh out of college, you're a little like, oh, what should I do? Then their competitor posted a job opening, <laughs> uh, actually before I was scheduled to graduate. Yeah. In their Atlanta office. And I said, oh, that would be a good I could take a year to figure out if I want to go back to New York or not. So I took that job in Atlanta. And then a year later, they asked me to come to New York. And it was great because the editorial director at the time was a guy named Clay Felker. In the 20th century magazine world, Clay's name loomed large. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, you know, the easiest way I can tell people who Clay Felker is talk about the Esquire magazine of the 1960s and the village voice of the late 60s and early 70s wow clay was an interesting guy he was from south carolina originally but huh. he did uh he completely transformed himself into a new yorker but <laughs> okay he, gave, I, he, he I, renounced I, his know, but own i got to background. work with him and it was really interesting too because there was clay was also the founder of new york magazine
0: oh okay and so a real titan of the uh yeah
1: and clay's I mean, Clay's three staff writers when he launched New York Magazine were Tom Wolf, Jimmy Breslin, and Gloria Steinem. <laughs> okay. So. All right. And we should I, all be so lucky. I, right. I mean, it, one day he came by my desk in the newsroom, and, you know, like right after I got up there, he was like, Mr. Reese, you want to go to lunch with a friend of mine today? Sure. Walked around the corner of this little Italian place, and there's Tom Wolfe. How cool. You know? Yeah. In the full white suit regalia. And I was like, I'm from Ellijay. This ain't supposed to happen. Yeah. (laughs) You know? But it did. One of the people who worked for Clay right when New York Magazine started was Dorothy Kalins. Mm -hmm who's a little bit older than me and and went on to become the founding editor of Savour, which is a really great food magazine. Yeah, yeah. Dorothy's much revered in the food writing community. And I ran into Dorothy maybe four years ago at a Southern Foodways Alliance conference for food writers in Birmingham, if I remember correctly. I think
0: they do a lot of their events there. Yeah.
1: And they had asked Dorothy to speak at this thing. And Dorothy and I kind of got to know each other a little bit. And, you know, when we first met, we discovered the Clay-Felker connection. Yeah. And at the end of the conference, Dorothy came up to me and she said, you're so much like Clay. (laughs) That was like one of the best compliments I ever got because Clay had this really great editorial sense. I remember when Rupert Murdoch first bought a bunch of television stations. That was when I was working for Adweek. And I remember this giant argument in the newsroom. I wasn't writing the story, you know, or anything. I just watched it. Yeah. And Clay was so insistent that the headline on the story had to reference a Murdoch plan to build a fourth network, which was only sort of hinted at in terms of what was on the record. Clay was prescient in that way. Yeah, he knew. Like he could he, he see, could see the to the nut of a story, real well yeah and so it's been really interesting because you know as we turn the corner into the new decade we've got a new assistant editor on board and over the last couple of months she and i have been doing you know a lot of looking at who our contributors actually are and i went through an exercise i think over this past weekend where i i I plotted them all on a map Mm -hmm. and they're all over the place yeah and I feel like we've gotten in this spot where writers who want to address the South, both its beauty and its ugliness, or perhaps both at the same time.
0: Uh-huh. The duality.
1: they Yeah, the duality. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again, Patterson. <laughs> you know, so I, I feel like I'm, as an editor, the Josina guests, our assistant editor, and I are sort of in a little bit of a catbird seat. You know, and I don't know that I've ever felt that way before because I feel like we're finally at a place where we can be more intentional about who writes for us and what we write about instead of only being, you know, 90-plus percent of of everything that's been in The Bitter Southerner since we began came as the result of a a writer or a photographer or some other creator of some kind pitching us something, Mm -hmm. you know. And I feel like we're finally at a point you know, six and a half years in, where we're finally going to be able to step back and say, okay, if we all want to make the South a better place to live in, if we want to find the kind of reconciliation that, you know, the dreamers in the South have been talking about forever, Mm -hmm. then we're finally at a point where we can sort of step back and say, okay, if that's the intention of our existence, what should we be covering? Right. Like what topical areas, what policy areas. And within those, who should be doing the stories? You know? Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, there's all kinds of things that move. There are things we can just be more intentional about having gotten this far and still be standing.
0: (laughs) Well, and things always look glossier on the outside, but, you know, I mean, a lot of what your growth to this point looks intentional, right? You started out I think very smartly with, well, we're just going to publish one feature a week. You know, we're not going to try to fill a bunch of SEO posts every day and and go out and grab page views that way. We're going to send you one good story every Tuesday. And since then, you've added the Folklore Project. You've added a short film series. You now have a podcast, which is in season two. Um, Mm -hmm. People should go check that out. Yes, please. (laughs) I just listened to the uh, cake episode on the drive-in.
1: I hope you enjoyed that. It
0: was great. It was great. I, it made me hungry, uh, and I'm going to have to go find that one shop. Uh, two Dough Girls? Two two Dough Girls.
1: They, and those two women, are delightful. They're so much fun to be around.
0: I never would have considered how much thought would have gone into the recipes of a cake, and so it was an excellent episode. And then, of course, the music episode, the bonus episode before that. And that, I think, has become one of the uh, most... Looked forward to pieces of The Bitter Southerner every year, right? Is your summer reading list, and then your year Which in review. Kyle
1: Gibbs-Jones, one of my co-founders, puts together every year. Yeah. And
0: then your music wrap-up right. that comes every December, your top 30 Southern albums.
1: And for the first time ever, I got some help in writing it this year.
0: Were you a music buff? I mean, was that kind of your passion before well, even, before you know, even the, launching The Bitter Southerner? Oh, my God, yes. It always has been.
1: Okay. I mean, I always loved music. I grew up loving music. My dad was the choir director in the little Baptist church where I grew up. He was well schooled in music. Stylistically, his thing was the, you know, that mid 20th century Southern gospel, as they called it, which really meant white gospel. And, you know, we grew up in the mountains in North Georgia and he, taught singing schools at churches would teach people the shape note system, not the old sacred harp one, but the real oh, seven think. note, uh-huh. you know, which was designed so that people who aren't weren't trained in music could sing right in a church, you know, or some other community gathering, because do is a certain shape, and so are re mi fa sol la ti do, you know? And once you know where do is with a pitch pipe or a tuning fork or just someone singing do, then you know, you know to the scale. Yeah. And so that's that was what I grew up in. Like when you hear people of that generation and they're dying so fast, you know, uh, talk about, you know, the gospel music of that era. You know, you'll hear them talk about quartets like the Blackwood Brothers or the Hovey Lister and the Statesman, you know. these All these groups who were all from the South, you know, from Alabama and Tennessee and Georgia. And, yeah. But my dad was also always careful to school me in the fact that, You know, if you listen to the Black Quartets, we're all singing the same songs. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just putting different spins on them. Right. You know,
0: and a lot of them were written, I guess, by
1: by Black. black, You know, that was that was something my dad really. You know, because like I was seven in 1968, and there were fires in the streets on Walter Cronkite every night, Mm -hmm. and like Dad would listen to Dr. King's sermons they used to run a lot more church services early on Sunday mornings on Atlanta TV than they do now, you know? And yeah. one of the, the so-called big three churches of the Civil Rights Movement on Auburn Avenue in Atlanta was the Wheat Street Baptist Church. There was, you know, Ebenezer Baptist where Dr. King was and the right. Wheat Street Baptist whose pastor was named or Reverend William Holmes Borders. I remember Dad, he would watch Reverend Borders like if I when I'd get up on a Sunday morning, you know, he was on it like 7 a.m. or something and he would watch that and like he was always real careful to i think he saw what was happening on tv mm-hmm. you know he knew from his experience in world war ii that what happens when we start saying people are evil because of who they are
0: we're talking before we pulled this on you you wear a ring that he wore in the battle of the bulge i do yeah.
1: i do that's that's my wedding ring so uh-huh. he
0: served during world war ii
1: it's the only part of me that survived all three marriages i've made uh Every woman I've ever married just let me wear this <laughs> ring. And I haven't worn it when I wasn't married, by the way, just so you know. Oh, um, no, but no judgment. Yeah, no. That that's kind of what I grew up in. Yeah. And so by the time I got to Athens, Georgia in 1979 for college, like the B-52s had literally like a few weeks before packed their stuff and moved to New York City because Warner Brothers had signed them. Mm-hmm. And then REM got started that very first year I was there. Wow. And it's hard not to be a music nerd when you take growing up like I did and my first experience with anything bigger than small town life being – you know, in Athens wasn't big town life. You know, but it was. I mean,
0: that, that was a great
1: time to be there for the music scene and football. And yeah, it was the only time we ever won the national championship in my lifetime. You know, <laughs> it might and,
0: still be. <laughs> it could,
1: could could very well be. And Lord, let's not get started on football. Okay. But it, yeah, it was a great time to be there. And and so yeah, I've always been a music nerd. And you know, the, the interesting backstory about this year's music list is that the gentleman who wrote. About half of the entries in it, charles aaron and and we worked together forty years ago on the Red and Black, the student newspaper oh UGA. that's the cool. there were three of us who moved to New York City with the ambition of being music critics. Mm-hmm. I was the only one who failed yeah. <laughs> well, you've turned it around your I, I, I've tried to turn it around later in my life, so. Charles, Aaron, who wrote The List with me, we were actually roommates in New York, and we were soon followed to New York by our friend Jim Tremaine, who now for 25 years has been the editor of a magazine called DJ Times, and evidently, if you are a nightclub DJ, that's your Bible.
0: Wow, okay. Trade publication for everything.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, and you know, Charles wound up being editor of Spin, editorial director of Spin, okay. moved home to the South three years ago, and... His wife, Tris, does communications work for a lawyer who handles, who's one of the most prominent death penalty defense attorneys in America. And he's living in Durham. And, you know, I just, I called him up and we'd been out of touch for too long. You know, Charles and I, we spent years sometimes not talking to each other. Like we'd talk, you know, every month for a year and then not talk for four (laughs) <laughs> you know, but it, it, since he's moved back home, he had contributed one feature story to us. And I just came to the reality that like hiring a new assistant editor was really sort of the first grown up job search we'd done. So
0: when you could pick up the phone and call a former uh, editor of Spend, then you got to use your resources at your take disposal. Take help where you can yeah, get it.
1: 100%. And Charles has always followed music even more deeply than I've ever had time to. And so between the two of us, I thought we put a pretty good list together. Of course. Well,
0: I I always learn something new from it. A thing that I like about your approach to music is that, you know, you'll have some people who are very good at identifying country music trends or very good at identifying rock music trends or very good at identifying hip hop and R&B trends. That list always has a good mix, but then also a piece of yours that's always stuck out to me is the Killer Mike piece where you uh, I think uh, the, the
1: feature story that I wrote the feature story real that early wrote, on yeah. real
0: early on but you point out you know the kind of comparison between his music and murder ballads in country music and you know how when people listen to Johnny Cash say I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die his audience doesn't generally think that he literally shot a man in Reno just to watch him die
1: but in hip hop people do sometimes
0: right and, and you know, uncritical ear sometimes assumes that it's it's a story of reality as opposed to a, a narrative.
1: Well, and that's what I was trying to point out. Yes, yeah. that, you know, if you're white and you grew up hearing Appalachian murder ballads, you know, because they are a part of... If you grew up in Appalachia, it's really sort of hard not to avoid... Hard to avoid growing up without knowing of that, I think. Particularly yeah. if you're interested in music at all. And it's a really particular form of music, too. Like... You know, not to go off on a tangent, but like one of the things that that was one of my most pleasing little nuggets of the year was on that amazing record that Alison Morer wrote to accompany her memoir about her parents' murder suicide.
0: A Mobile native, I believe she that is. That yeah. is
1: correct, right? And that happened when she was a child in Mobile or out, outside Mobile, actually Munroville. Like there is one song on that record. That is nothing but her telling the story of what happened in her family in the form of an Appalachian murder ballot. And it's one of the most riveting things I've ever heard in my life. And you do have to know the backstory to be riveted by it. But oh my God, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you grow up in that, yeah. you know? So you hear things like, I picked a stick up off the ground and knocked that fair girl down. Mm -hmm. Okay. What is that? It's violence toward a woman. Yeah. And in that song, Knoxville girl, from which I'm quoting, you know, she's bleeding to death on the ground, drags her by the hair into the river and drowns her. It's a gruesome song. Yeah. It always seemed like growing up with that, no one ever thought, oh, the guy who's singing that song would actually do that. And I knew for a fact from talking to people about hip-hop that sometimes when they heard a hip-hop song that referenced guns, you know, or the drug trade in the streets, they always thought that the rapper...
0: Yeah, you would see on Bill O'Reilly or Sean Hannity or whatever, they would talk about hip-hop driving violence, and people wouldn't make the same thing. Well, it it
1: always occurred to me that... You know, because like another thing about the coincidence of when I got to certain places where was the summer I did my internship with the Society of Magazine Editors in New York City the summer of 1982 was the first year that hip hop records broke big on the radio. Mm -hmm. You couldn't go anywhere in Manhattan that summer without hearing one of two songs at least once a day. The message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, and Planet Rock by African Bombada, which was primarily just instrumental, yeah. but the message was a very pointed song. And as somebody who had grown up in sort of the punk rock ethos of of Athens, to hear you know Melly Mel spitting lines like. You know a child is born with no state of mind blind to the ways of mankind god's smiling on you but he's frowning too god only goes no and god only knows what you'll go through you'll grow in the ghetto living second rate second rate and your eyes will sing a song of deep hate the places you stay and where you play look like one great big alleyway you know yeah and it's like i have
0: to drop a beat beneath that
1: (laughs) to me oh god the last thing anybody ever wants is for me to rap. but You know, I heard that stuff and I was like, okay, this is punk rock from the black community. That's what I heard. And that's kind of how I've always, for my choices in popular music, you know, it's like that's how I always tried to look at it. And one thing I wanted to do when I sat down with Mike, because I saw the way he wrote and I saw that he was wrestling with some of the same issues from a very different perspective, from perspective that I could not have yeah. in his songs. You know, Particularly on that, that rap music album, that RAP music, al- you know, re- rebellious African people. And, you know, Mike's one of my favorite people in the universe. Mike is a very pro-Second Amendment dude, you know? Our views differ on that. I'm not an anti-Second Amendment dude, but I'd probably go farther down the reasonable gun controls route than Mike would. You know, right? You know, however, now and then you meet somebody who's like, like a genuinely independent thinker. Like they don't follow much of anybody's party line. Yeah, that's kind of what Mike is like, and that's just one of the reasons I value him. Yeah. You know, I think everybody in the South should be grateful for a guy like him.
0: Well, and they should check out not only rap music, his album, but also all the Run the Jewels albums. All three of them. His uh, and Netflix And what I'm hoping show. for,
1: there'll be a fourth one before too long. I haven't heard anything to that occasion. The last time I spoke to Mike, I said, how's four? And he said, ain't even started. You know, I I love what they've been able to do together. In a way, you know, him and LP are kind of a living example of the sort of, like, that's been our sneaky agenda all along. We wanted to create a magazine whose contributors and subject matter actually reflect the diversity of the region. And it's been a really slow haul. And, you know, I feel like, again, this is one of those things where going into 2020, I'm optimistic because we've actually got a plan for how to make that happen, so.
0: Coming up after the break, Chuck and I discuss the importance of finding honest and authentic voices from the South. So what do you consider the region? What falls into the Bitter Southerner's purview?
1: It's interesting that you ask me this now because I just spent the time after the holidays trying to look at that very question on kind of a deep level. Mm -hmm. So you'll probably wish that you had interviewed me about this before I did all that. (laughs) Uh, I want want the answer. (laughs) But if you look at our feature story content in general, I would say that, that over the last several years, the Bitter Southerner has spent a lot of time doing some really good stories that use cultural reference points to play off various parts of the South's history. I think a great example was one of our most popular stories of last year, and it was also, the, I believe, the very first story that we ran in 2019. and it was written by another Alabama native, another person from Monroeville, Cynthia Tucker, oh, a okay. Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist. She wrote a feature story for us called Traveling Wild Negro, which was designed to come out when Green, all book. Green Book, the movie, there was all the Oscar hubbub about it. Yeah. Because a large part of the problem the South has is, is our own whitewashed versions of history and Hollywood's whitewashed versions of that history. So we simply wanted to interview some people who had to use that book as their travel guide lest they put themselves in danger or in any greater danger. And Cynthia went out and found them, you know? I mean, and she was talking to everybody from now old people who were folks that she grew up around to Hank Aaron, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so we've done a a good bit of that, and we've done a, a pretty good job of it. I think we've had a lot of really good instances where we focused on people who actually address core issues that, particularly poor people in the south. It's it's, it's funny because the examples I, I keep coming up with for these things are all in Alabama. Well, you know, we are uh, the
0: quintessential southern state. There you go.
1: <laughs> but, uh, you know, like this piece which really just took off this year that Jennifer Cornegay wrote for us about the little restaurant called Drexel and Honeybees down in Bruton.
0: The pay where you pay what you can. Where you
1: pay what you can. Yeah. We heard a couple of weeks after that that one of Lester Holt's producers had called Drexel and Honeybees about perhaps visiting. I don't know whatever came from that, but, you know, I I, I look at what Lisa Thomas McMillan and her husband are doing in that restaurant. And if you go back to Dr. King's work, talking about the kind of beloved community he wants to build, right? He wanted us to build. That's what her and her husband are doing. Yeah. I mean... There's a direct intellectual, historical, and spiritual line. I want us to find all those people out there in the South who, in their own little community, in their own little way, because I think it's really hard for people right now not to get lost in, in what seems like a really unpleasant soup of political ideas. You know, we, we seem to live in this this age where, you know, the battle lines are so strictly drawn in terms of our culture, that, you know, I I mean, we don't have the resources to go out and cover teacher conditions across the South in a detailed way. Right. I wish we did, but we don't. And it's probably going to be another six years before we might So we've always been in the position of having, you know, we were forced by economics to try to cover these big issues through small lenses. And I want us to be able to do more of that. And I want us to be able to make sure that the right people tell stories.
0: What do you mean by the right people telling stories?
1: Well, I think one of the things I find myself bumping up against just as a person in this part of Southern history. Let me give you an example, 25 years ago, if I were to drive on my way somewhere past a large old plantation home out in the country in the south, which all of us who grew up here have had occasion to do when driving on a two-lane road in the country, right? Of course. let well, say you know that house was built pre-Civil War, right? We used to drive by that house and think to ourselves, wow, that house has been there since before the Civil War, and that's all we thought about. It.
0: Charitably, I mean, some would have had the romanticized "Gone with the Wind" notions of it. But yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: But you know, now we're we're at a place where all people of reasonable intelligence and goodwill are, are looking at a house like that and going, "Okay, not just who was the man." You know, we used to say things like, "Yes, this fellow who played such and such a role in his community built this house." Well, no, he didn't build it. And then if you correct yourself and say, oh, who paid to have it billed? That's not right either. Uh-huh. He owned slaves. He owned people who were obligated under the law we had until the Emancipation Proclamation to do that work for him under terrible conditions. Right. And what do we do with all that information? So what I'm talking about is trying to be mindful of what the same stories in the South mean two different segments of this great mosaic of people who make up Southern culture. So when our stories cross into history like that, that's what I mean by getting, getting the right people to tell them doesn't always mean the right people to write the story. It also means the voices right. the that are brought into the, the
0: perspective. Story. Yeah,
1: You know, and along and along, we've grown the number of people of color who contribute to us. You know, and if you look back at the history of magazines, it's about the South. You know, we, we do have a history in this region, not only in magazines, but also in newspapers, of black people publishing magazines for black people and mm-hmm. white people creating publications for white people. We've always wanted to be different from that. You know, we've always wanted to get everybody in the mix. As we've become more widely known, we've gotten better at that. And I feel kind of like going into 2020, we can... You know, in this decade, we ought to be able to make a lot of headway with it, you know, so that when you look at the Bitter Southerner, you're hearing, over the course of a half a dozen stories or so, a representative sample of the whole South. I guess what I mean is this. I used to say no one's ever going to understand what the South of the 21st century is like by reading one of our stories, but that I hoped as we kept doing that one big feature story a week. People maybe six, eight months in could look and pick a random cross section of a half a dozen and and get a reasonable feel. Yeah. Now I just think what we've grown to the point where we can move faster than just every few months toward that goal. I want us to get aggressive, more aggressive than we've been, to try to be inclusive of all those voices that make up this culture. It's one thing to sit around and preach what I believe is the truth that our culture is a gumbo, that everyone has put the flavors of their own roots into but talking about a gumbo and making a gumbo are two different things
0: and we're having a lot of similar conversations right now and you know it's just interesting cuz you know we think of south as a place sometimes and south as a shared story and, and and all of that and there are times when i'm struck by like the south as like a generational thing like i did not grow up in in the high school that i went to in the birmingham suburbs in the 2000s i was being taught that slavery was the root cause of the Civil War. Right? Oh, you were. I was. Yes, for a large portion of, I mean, for the majority of I Southern history, you were not. Yeah, I most was not. people were not. I mean, but we were not taught more than sort of the rudimentary details about the Civil Rights Movement, right? I would guess. I mean, so much of of my understanding, it's hard to know now, was something I would have learned then, or, or something that I've learned since then, but you know, beyond Dr. King and Rosa Parks and and even the sort of, we get the Disney story of Rosa Parks as opposed to kind of her activist history in her own right. Stuff like that, we weren't learning great then, but then I'll talk to some Gen Z colleagues who, who learned that portion of history better than I did. And so, you know, I think even like, each generation's understanding of the richer history of the South is better than, or hopefully, ideally, is better than the generation that came before it. So you have like all of these Southerners living in the same era, but also living in different histories. It's and, interesting and overlapping to me to hear mindsets. you say
1: that because I've often had those thoughts too. Yeah, a lot, you know. And I mean, I guess it's just a truism for history, you know, societies evolve generationally. One hopes. One there, hopes. There are times when right. well, they, like they, it doesn't feel like it. They move in one way or another. Yeah. That's yeah. for sure. I've often thought about it like that, but I, you know, hearing you say that, it sort of makes me think that, you know, the Bitter Southerner was possible. I had that chip on my shoulder. My co-founders had that chip on their shoulder. We had no idea when we flipped the switch and turned on the Bitter Southerner that there were so many other people with the same chip on their shoulder. Mm -hmm. You talked earlier about reading that very first thing I wrote and that first thing Patterson Hood wrote, which were both, you know, the first one was week number one, the second one was week number three. Mm -hmm. That was our first month because we knew we kind of wanted to come out, you know, and I, it took me a lot of arm twisting with Mr. Hood to get him to write that. We'd been friends for a long time, but I really, I pushed our friendship to the limits because he really didn't want to go there. Mm -hmm. You know, he had... He'd written that record and was done with it. He thinks about the product of his work in a different way than I think about mine. You yeah, know? yeah. And that's as it should be. But, you know, we wanted to come out and say this is who we're about, but we're pretty clear also that we were kind of mystified about what would come next, and we stayed that way for a whole year, and it's a miracle that we're here at all. I mean, I, I look back on that first year, and, like, I keep thinking to myself that you should just sit down one day. And, you know, maybe on the seventh anniversary and write every single person who contributed a thing to us, a handwritten note, because it just felt like there were a bunch of people who sort of willed the thing into existence, because if they hadn't come out of the woods with stories, we'd have had nothing to run, you know, because before we ever started, I'd twisted every writer's arm I could twist just by trying to explain conceptually what we were trying to do we've always attracted an uncommonly high caliber of writer john we have survived based on two things when it comes to our contributors one is by willing to take a shot on young contributors and to work with them to help them pull together a three to five thousand word long-form narrative feature story and you're a journalist you know that like when you write long It's something you have to kind of mature into. But because we didn't have a choice, I was always willing to, if there was a young person who saw what we were doing and got it, had a good idea and could show me reasonable proof that they could sling a good sentence, you know, that maybe they had a little verve in their writing, Mm -hmm. I'd coach them through the process, help them learn how to hold a story together when you're asking somebody to spend 15 minutes reading it, you know, or 20 minutes. The other way is veteran journalists who had stories in closets who saw in us a place to, that would finally let them tell that story in the way they always wanted to. That's how we were able, you know, from the beginning to get, you know, people like Wendell Brock, the first James Beard Foundation award we ever won for food writing was a story that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution years and years ago had not let him write the way he wanted to about his interview with Marie Rudisil. And if you go on YouTube and Google Jay Leno, fruitcake lady, <laughs> okay. you will find this woman who was Truman Capote's aunt. Oh, yes, I remember this story. And, you know, when she became popular doing these skits with Jay Leno, these interview segments with Jay Leno where they would cook something on on The Tonight Show. You know, he got sent to Florida to write about her, and she wound up dumping all this family dish on Truman Capote and Harper Lee and her family to him. And in, the tapes had just been sitting in a box in his garage for years. And, you know, Wendell is gay, and hearing her talk about Truman the way she talked about him was a hard thing for Wendell. I bet. But yeah. as a young reporter, it was, it was an experience that helped him go through his own coming to terms with who he was. And he wrote it that way for us. And it was beautiful. And it won a Beard Award. And it still turns up in our top stories of the year. Wow. I guarantee you, I do this every year, John. I look at what our top stories were by page view. Of course. There are three stories that since their publication, have never fallen out of the top 25. And one of them was one of those rank amateur things. What was that one? It was a story that a guy named Cy Brown, who we've got working on. Cy lives in Kentucky now, but when he pitched me the story, I was on the board of directors at the Red and Black, my alma mater's independent student newspaper, Mm -hmm. and I walked out of a board meeting in Athens one day, and Cy was the managing editor at the time. He was a 24 year old managing editor. He'd had a little, sort of a slow undergrad kind of thing like (laughs) many do. And he came up to me and he said, Mr. Reese, I very much like the bitter southerner and I have what may be a good story idea for you. Do you have a few minutes? And I said, yes. And he told me about when his girlfriend, who he's now married to, who had gotten him a puppy for one Christmas and he had tried to figure out what kind of dog it was. And it was just, as we all, you often hear in the South, just an old yellow dog.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Well, Cy got to looking into where this dog of his, Penny, came from, and he discovered that it was probably a something called a Carolina dog, which only recently at the time had the Westminster Kennel Club in Great Britain designated as a real breed, and that all the historical research suggested was the only breed of canine or the only breed of domestic canine that was native to the North American continent. So it turns out that these old yeller dogs people talk about seeing in the woods in the South, are a breed called the Carolina Dog. And they found their ideal habitat in the Pine Barrens of the Carolinas. I mean, I don't know about you, but I used to hear, like my dad was born in 1919, so probably like your grandparents or whatever. People of that generation, he's just some old yeller dog, you know, I don't know who he belongs to. Yeah. You know, it was their write-off phrase for a dog, you know, but it wasn't. It was like this really rich thing. And there's this guy named Briz, short for Brisbane, who's a professor who's documented all this. And he runs a big gathering every year in the, the Pine like Barrens of all the Carolina dog owners. Yeah. And what's so funny is the story that Cy wrote about this discovery of his. If you just Google Carolina dog, it's one of the first top five things you see. Yeah. It's become kind of a Bible or or at least a parable that's passed along you know to all owners or people who think they might own a Carolina dog. So you know that's another thing we're starting to play with too is like there are a lot of stories in our catalog that the majority of our readers has never seen.
0: Uh, I mean that's such a hard thing about uh, on the one hand it feels like things live forever on the internet but on the other hand like it's such a Firehose of information coming at you all the time. That sometimes it's easy to miss a story, and, well, they and you stumble onto it years later.
1: But you have to put some effort into ensuring that they live on. Mm-hmm. You know, my, one of my partners who I mentioned earlier, Kyle Jones, who is is our voice in social media as well as doing many other things for us. She's always had a really good, you know, and this is something she's gotten. You know, really sharp at over the last year or two is like when is it, when is good timing to resurrect something from the catalog. Yeah, we've written some things that always get discussion going. And what's interesting is that it seems like every time she does that, the story gets a, a new parcel of people who sort of wave the flag for it and pass it along to their friends. So it's great. It works out pretty well for us having that.
0: Well, what should we be looking forward to in 2020 from you guys?
1: I've been really excited about this podcast season. I'm very excited about the final episode that runs in March and I'm really excited about it. I mean, I've been doing this kind of shit for a long time and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've interviewed a lot of people. I've interviewed a lot of famous people, up to the ranks of like Pete Townsend of The Who is probably the most, you that's know a, that's a cool one. Famous person I've ever interviewed. But in all those interviews with with famous people, I don't think I've ever come away moved like genuinely, like emotionally moved. And that was an interview I did for that last episode with Congressman John Lewis about three weeks before it was announced that he had stage four pancreatic cancer. We talk extensively with one of your colleagues, John Archibald, for that episode. A lot of the stuff, you know, that he has uncovered... And is writing about in his upcoming book, having to do with his own father's role as a minister mm-hmm. in Alabama in the days of the civil rights movement—a very direct correlation, you know. And this is the kind of work that John is genius at doing. I think he's been such an asset to the whole South because of that. You know, he's stacking up his own experience of that with, you know, that call that rang so loudly from in Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham Jail about. The person he worried about the most was the white moderate yeah who worried about don't go too far too fast right there's an interview i did with my own interview that i did with peggy wallace kennedy who i'm sure you all have talked about a great deal but you know i also interviewed congressman lewis he and andrew aden his staffer who co-wrote the national book award-winning graphic novel with three volumes called march mm-hmm. with congressman lewis i did not know until that interview that they're planning a, another Graphic novel, yeah, they're, another they're, comic book—that's good—or series. And yeah. It's called Run. That's cool. That's it's nice. like, how do you, okay? Now that you've marched, you have to run yeah. for office. You have yeah. to, you know, do what Congressman Lewis did. And I, you know, I—I I, I hit him point blank with a question. You know, some hard questions about the South, reckoning with its history and its past. And his optimism was just so striking. Like how deeply he still believes in the thing he's always talked about. Like, you know, I spent many years before my wife and I moved out of the city of Atlanta into Clarkston, Georgia, just a little bit east of where we're sitting right now. You know, he was my congressman, and I'd see him, you know, and we used to live in a neighborhood called Inman Park that always had a parade every springtime, and Uh he was always in the Inman Park Festival parade, and... You know, I'd shake his hand or I'd see him out at Manuel's Tavern, which is sort of a legendary Democratic Party hangout bar in yeah. Atlanta yeah. that's in his district. And also happened to be really convenient to Emmon Park where I lived, you know, and but this was the first time I'd ever had a chance to ever have like a real one on one conversation with the man. And like that idea that if you bear the truth and present it with love in the face of all that comes up against it, it will prevail. Mm-hmm. I mean, how deeply he believes that idea that, that his colleague Dr. King sketched out about the moral arc of the universe, mm-hmm. about it being long but it bending toward justice. He's such a happy warrior in that fight, man. And
0: has been for so long. It's amazing.
1: And that's, you know, when we lose him, we're going to lose something special. But what I want to make sure everyone knows is like, you know, and, and that we have people presenting it and that, that all the right voices come into the discussion. I want people to know all the people who, who live like that, because it goes way deeper than the people who generally come to mind when someone writes the phrase, American Civil Rights Movement, on a sheet of paper in front of you, right? Mm-hmm. Like Fannie Lou Hamer, who not a lot of people know about, but like, my goodness, I mean, the woman formed her own political party and actually got herself elected to Congress and they wouldn't seat her. You know, there's more heroes in there for us, you know? And I, I don't know, you know, you, you hear a lot of people talk about Dr. King's words as being prophetic. And sometimes I actually find, you know, this is the kind of thinking that one does when one turns 59, when one is <laughs> facing one's 60s, you know, women right before them, as I am. Sometimes I wonder if the man wasn't actually a prophet in the grand sense.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I mean when he talked about the beloved community, this place where people could love and respect one another and live in community, regardless of race, place, or station. Mm-hmm. It, so much of our our political discourse these days is whether whether a we can ever get to that. Mm -hmm. and all of the hard work that must be done to get to it. And B, it brings back to my mind, uh, you know, we, we just seem like we're in this place now where people are, they want to see the whole truth. A lot of people don't, but a lot of people do. Yeah. You know, our job is to tell it to them in a way that's considerate of all whose lives are affected by those stories, however they take shape, you know, whatever angle we come at them by. I just think that in in the way that people, you know, talk about what Isaiah said would happen in the kingdom of David, I just think we're all at a point because, you know, the question of whether we should even pursue a beloved community seems to be at the very center of our political discourse these days. Yes. You know, I think one can either choose to be a pessimist about the possibility or an optimist about it. Mm-hmm. And I want to try to follow Congressman Lewis's example. You know, so when you start thinking about what examples to follow, it's not hard to look at things like the letter from the Birmingham jail and other all the many other things that Dr. King wrote and not, you know, see a part of that where he was actually trying to envision, as a prophet would, what would happen if we could only meet certain moral tests of ourselves Mm -hmm. right and and i think that's what i really mean it's like you can either believe hey we might get there one day and the idea of it looks promising to you or you can say i don't want any part of that at all and that's not who we the bitter southerner are talking to i mean those people thin themselves from our herd fairly quickly Mm -hmm. and i just prefer personally to think well maybe that's prophetic maybe we actually can get to that if you keep on. But it's hard, and I, I think there are a lot of white people now who are willing to do the work, but don't really understand how much the work entails. Don't really understand what it's like to, you know, put yourself in the shoes of somebody. You know, just to, I mean, when you think about it, even to hear the word slavery or slave, what if the thing that, the thought that instantly came into your mind was, that's the way my ancestors forced to live Mm -hmm. it makes you think about things in a different way and I think that's where reconciliation gets really really tough for people you know sure does yeah and you know so I want us to go boldly and optimistically into that Mm -hmm. instead of away from it and we be maybe naive but Our audiences seem to allow us a lot of forgiveness over the years Mm -hmm. because they're at least hungry to engage in the discussion. And the one thing I'm more grateful for than any single thing as a result of starting this publication is the community that's come together around it, you know, which our membership is the core of that, the people who support the journalism that we do not by buying t-shirts or other things we sell in our merchandise because it's true that we are a retail business you know and it's the odd model we've sort of come up with to support our journalistic endeavor Mm -hmm. you know we're a t-shirt business with a journalism habit (laughs) Uh, and the people who want to support it apart from that just because they believe well it's no different than people believing i need to shell out for an al.com subscription yeah. You know, because it's a value to them. It helps them understand where they live.
0: And you should chill out for an AL. Not you, but our listeners should chill out.
1: <laughs> well, I, I, I'm one of these people who believes in the turnabout's fair play. and yeah. You know, so there are a few AL.com subscriptions rolling around the Bitter Southerner house, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, well, I mean, it's the, the truth is we can't do our work without one now. That's how essential your organization's coverage of that state has become you know those people have there have been more and more and more of those people every year you know that was a trend that we saw continue in 2019 i just have a feeling that all that community all those people who come together like that they are of the mind that they want to go into it too but i see them in the facebook group and and when we talk to them they're struggling with how yeah they're trying to figure out how do we do this how do we have these conversations What does it mean when a white person writes about an injustice done to blacks? Mm -hmm. These are all difficult questions. They are. And, you know, there are no easy answers. You can't set a policy that solves all your problems there, you know, but that's the thing I'm most grateful for because unlike a lot of editors, I don't have to go very far when I'm looking for advice from my readership because, you know, one thing membership gets you is entry into this private Facebook group For members only I swear it's like the last same place on Facebook (laughs) you know people talk civilly to each other they disagree sometimes Uh, they call each other out sometimes yeah but they do do it in a civil manner and and I think people like that are very ready to be open and go and be optimistic and go what can we learn what can change I think everybody realizes now that having broken finally broken the schools out of the old stereo, the old way of teaching. I history. won't
0: say all of them have, but mine, mine had. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah you know. Yeah, but it's
1: yeah. happening, it is happening. more and more yeah. across the south. Mm-hmm. All right. But when that happened, p- people began to, you know, it's not hard for a young person these days to go, okay, Grandpa, all this stuff you tell me about the Civil War is bullshit, and I got the proof. It's right here. You ever heard of a thing called Google? You know, <laughs> and. So it's, you know, we live in a different world, and we had a generation that came up in the Internet age who are just willing to say, okay, these are the facts. Mm -hmm. Let's deal with them. But not everyone, no one knows how. Everyone's still figuring out how to do that. And I think that's where I see a shift coming, uh, and we want to try to be, you know, looking ahead of that and, and, and trying to lead it in whatever ways that it's appropriate for us to do that.
0: Well, Chuck, I look forward to seeing where you take that, and I look forward to uh, continuing to explore the South and tell some great stories about the South with you through uh, Bitter Southerner and Reckon, and uh, it was a great pleasure to talk to you today.
1: Thank you for having me, John. I appreciate you giving me the chance to to be interviewed rather than interviewed. <laughs> it's always fun. All, All right.
0: right. Thank you. And that's all the time we have this week, y'all. Thanks to Chuck Reese for making the time to chat with us. You can find his work at BitterSoutherner.com. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree, and it was produced and edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like Reckon, follow us everywhere on social media and sign up for our newsletter. And hey, if you're feeling generous, leave us a five-star review. That'll help us get these great stories from the South more out there. And until next week, be well.